You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Hi, I'm Joshua. I am uh, an elder of the of Redemption Hill Church, and it is my pleasure to be with all of us here. If you open your Bibles with me, um, open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, and turn with me to Philippians, I'll be reading from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Church, these are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith. Will you join me by going to this God with a word of prayer? Lord, we come before you asking simply that you would show us Christ. This Christ in whom we are to press onward towards. This Christ for whom we await. This Christ who is our hope and our glory. Lord, help us to see him through the preaching of your word. Do this by the power of your spirit. We have nothing to offer you but our hearts. So take our hearts and make us your own. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Good afternoon to all of you again. Uh, As I think about this day today, I realize that it has been just about a year, one year since I was appointed an elder at Redemption Hill Church on 11th of February, sorry, 12th of February, 2023. So it's almost been literally like 
about a year. If you are here and you are unfamiliar with these terms, um, an elder is, is a pastor. At Redemption Hill Church, we understand that these terms, elder, pastor, same thing, same office. Uh, all of this is really my way of saying that I've had about one year to think, what really is pastoral ministry about? I wonder what you think pastoral ministry is about. How would you describe it or explain it to someone? Well, as I thought about it, I remembered Richard Baxter. If you don't know Richard Baxter, you'll be familiar with his, uh, you can get familiar with his visage on, on the screen. Uh, Richard Baxter, he was an English pastor who lived in the 1600s. He didn't have it easy. It has been said that his perspective on ministry was forged in the fiery trial of poor health, where his life was a continuous, continual struggle against death. They tell us he was harassed by a constant cough, migraines, kidney stones, and as I read it, at least six other health problems, constantly and chronically. And all of these ailments in an era without painkillers. However, Baxter saw his suffering as a crucial component that shaped his ministry perspective. Poor health and the imminent possibility of death made him study and preach necessary things. As, uh, as someone records for us, they stirred his sluggish heart to speak to sinners with some compassion as a dying man to dying men. Is that how you understand what we are doing here on Sundays week after week? Is that how you understand this very occasion, what I am about to do with you? Here I am, Joshua, a dying man, speaking to dying men. Well, this probably isn't what you expected to hear on Chinese New Year, the very occasion where uh, a death in the family precludes you from participating in these festivities. Uh, you're only allowed to have well wishes for a prosperous year ahead. So I, I, I'm sorry if you're uncomfortable. I, I, I really am. But, but, but at the same time, I, I hope you recognize the truth of our regular Sunday gatherings. What are we doing here? Every great world religion and philosophy worth anything at all is meant to help you grapple with the reality of death, reckon with what it means for you, and live your life with wisdom thereafter. This applies to all of us, whether you are religious or irreligious, and it applies to all of us because death comes to all of us, religious or otherwise. Even atheists have developed their own ways for leading or pastoring each other towards death, the New York Times had a fascinating feature. Just last month, um, on an atheist prison chaplain, uh, that's like a pastor in the prison, a prison chaplain named Devin Moss, he spent one year preparing a convicted murderer named Philip Hancock to die well. It's worth a read if you have the time uh, after this sermon, of course. But, but, but here's, here's my main point. Here's my main point. For all of us who will one day die, how are you and I to live in light of our impending death? And then, how are you and I to live in light of the life that is to come? I put it to you that what we just read here in this letter, that is the Apostle Paul's frame of mind as he writes to the Philippian church, and it comes out so strongly in our text. As a dying man speaking to dying men, here's what Paul has to say in short. Hold on. We are going home. 
we're going to think about this uh, in, in just two broad frames. If you look at the next slide, we're going to think about how Paul tells us to press on because we are not yet home and then to stand firm. Stand firm because we are almost home. Look with me to the text. Verse 12, um, all, all the way following through. You, you see on the screen that it becomes quite clear immediately. We see that Paul wants them to know about his effort. Do you see the repeated words? Press on, press on. Contextually, however, we know that this isn't just an insecure Paul who is suddenly a tryhard. Contextually, we know that he's not just trying to grind it out, earning his way to salvation. We know this from the earlier verses that I read for us from verse 7 onwards, and this is really important. So so look with me in your Bibles. I'm just going to read for us from verses 10 to 11. Paul says, I do all of these things that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you recognize how Paul is living his life? He's living his life not only with the end of his own life in mind, but he's living with eternity in mind. Paul is saying, this life, it is not enough. I I want to know God forever through resurrection life. And so I press on to make it my own. Friends, this is an example of that beautiful dance between Christian assurance and effort. Assurance and effort coming together. I say that he speaks from a place of assurance because that's what the text tells us. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. How exactly does this assurance drive effort? Well, you can almost hear it say it. You can almost hear him say it. I have tasted and known so many things of Christ. He has made me his own. But the more I know, the more I see there is still so, so much more to know. Least of all, resurrection life where I will be with this Jesus Christ forever. And and, and yes, although this resurrection life, it is mine by faith as I trust in Christ, I want to grow and grow in my assurance by pressing on and on in my experience towards Christ. See, friends, Paul writes this way because Paul really knows. Not just the knowledge of acquiring things from Wikipedia, not not, not just hate knowledge, but knowing as an intimate and personal and experienced activity. It is like a man wandering a desert and he stumbles across an oasis. He runs to it, kneels down, drinks from it. And then what does he do next? Would such a man say, I've had my drink, now let me continue wandering. Let me observe the cacti. Let let, let, let me just stay around in 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 the desert. No, such a man would never say that. Having tasted and having known something of this life-giving sustenance, surely he will say, take me down to the paradise city where the grass is green and the water is aplenty. Surely, surely, that that is the frame of mind for all who have seen and tasted. And here's what it means for us today. Church, if you have really known grace, the message of grace that says, in your rebellion against God, you deserve only wrath, but God has secured your peace by dying in your place, and your final destiny, it is to be with Him forever. That's the point of heaven. If you have really known the joy and experience of this grace, you will press on to want to know more and more of Christ. That's the attitude that Paul displays for us here, an attitude that he says is the hallmark of Christian maturity. 
What do you think a mature Christian is? Someone who has been around a long time, smart, lots of Bible knowledge? Well, Paul gives us a better indicator in some way. The mature Christian, Paul says, is never satisfied with just a taste of heavenly grace. Having known its sweetness, the mature Christian wants his life on earth to reflect that heaven is his home. Redemption Hill Church, let's take Paul's example as a guide. Do not be satisfied with yesterday's grace. That's one example of what it means in verse 13, to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Do not be satisfied with yesterday's grace. It's really not about amnesia or just being performance-driven, but it is about pressing on, making every effort to fight complacency. Christian friends, especially if you've been around for a long time, when was the time you really sat down and thought to yourself, I am going to make war against complacency? There's so, so much more of God for us to know. I, I hope you see that this sort of effort, it is not opposed or an enemy of grace. Rather, effort is meant to be a friend of grace. Earning is the enemy of grace. But effort itself, it is a good, good friend. And so it is good for us to ask ourselves these sometimes difficult and hard questions. Is the reality of your salvation just some long time ago remembrance of what God did for you at some point of time in some place? Is your experience of grace, and I don't just mean everyday providential, God has done good things for me, grace, but I mean transforming my heart, grace. Is your experience of that grace just something somewhere in the dusty recesses of your memory? And if that's the case, are you content being like that? If that's the case, what does that reveal of your Christianity? Could it be that your Christianity is no more than just a spiritual insurance policy? It really is so much more of God for us to know and the mature Christian presses on to make sure that they are not just living in the grace of the past, but grace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And before we move on, I, I have a quick word to those of us who are concerned for the maturity of, of another brother or si- another sister. Uh, look, with your, look with me in your Bibles to verses 15 to 16. And the message is simple to all of us who are so concerned and maybe even worked up. The message is trust. Trust in God's gracious provision. If Paul the Apostle can entrust them to the Lord, so can you. We are to trust that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Those of us who are walking with one another, with with someone else who might not be moving as quickly as as you want them to, it would do us well to recognize the wisdom of our own limitations. I, I don't mean stop encouraging I don't mean stop exalting, but make sure that within this picture, you entrust them to the Lord. Of course, verse 16, don't forget to let them know what's at stake. Let us hold true to what we have attained in Christ, which I believe is really just another way of saying, because Christ has made you his own, press on to make it your own. Not only do we press on, But as the subsequent verses tell us from 17 to 19, we keep watch. 
for we are not yet home. Paul's wisdom as a pastor also shows in his pedagogy, how he wants people to learn. He knows that many things of the Christian life have to be caught just as much as they are taught. He's not content to lecture. He wants them to learn from his life. And so he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's a pretty bold exhortation, isn't it? How, how many of you in your life have actually gone up to someone else, brother or sister in Christ, and told them, imitate me? Probably not too many of us. But how, however strange it might be to our ears, I, I hope you see that whatever Paul means and whatever Paul is doing, he certainly isn't preening like a peacock. The, the, the way some of those seemingly successful sell you life hacks to become just like them. You, you know the type. You've seen the type. They sometimes appear on your advertisements where, where imitate me is really just a thinly veiled way of saying praise me or even worse, give me your money. That, 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 that's definitely not what Paul is doing here. Remember, Paul is writing to them from jail. At the very least, this contextualizes everything. At the very least, to imitate Paul is to think and follow and consider his example as a sufferer. When was the last time you invited someone to look into your life, how you are suffering the shame, even the shame of the world, and then to see how you stand assured with the hope of heaven? That, that's what Paul is doing here. He, he's not saying any of this with a hint of pomp or arrogance. Rather, Paul wants them to imitate the pattern of his life. Consider his priorities. Consider his pursuit of the gospel. This idea of a pattern, the reason why I say pattern, is because it's sort of embodied there. Paul isn't just telling them, whatever I do, do a one-for-one. One. I'm in prison, so you go and be in prison. I eat whatever it is I eat for breakfast, so you do that also. He's not talking about that sort of one-for-one one copycatting, but he's talking about following his pattern of life. And that's sort of embedded in the language of walk, which we see right there those who walk according to the example that you have in us. He's speaking about a sustained process, a long obedience in the same direction. But, but how exactly does this sort of imitation happen, uh, according to Paul? Well, he tells, us, he tells us this happens up close and personal. That's why Paul longs to see them face to face. And since Paul might take some time to get to them, he's still in prison. Paul wants them to keep their eyes on those who are already among them. Why adopt this model of face-to-face -face ministry? Is Paul not so savvy with communications? Is Paul not content writing them a monthly newsletter, um, five better tips for a more godly life? Um, maybe even train some real case studies for them to work out. You know, just keep it remote, keep things scalable, keep your solutions optimized for efficiency. But why doesn't Paul do that? Well, Paul doesn't do that because real Christian imitation needs real life, face-to-face, -face, everyday living in order to learn how someone walks through life. That's what you need. You don't need sound bites, highlights, social media snapshots. Let, let, let me put this another way. This is why you and I need the local church. Not just inspirational Instagram accounts, 
not just even online preachers whom we love. It's the local church in which we are called to live up close in such a manner that you and I might see how someone else walks. I'm really not saying that reading your favorite theologian in whatever book or listening to your preacher elsewhere isn't helpful. God knows just how much of my own deep spiritual formation has come about through the Timothy Kellers or D.A. Carsons of this world. But church, here's the point. In a deep sense, it is necessary and even more helpful that I get to live with you. It's far more necessary and even more helpful that I get to live with you than to listen to my esteemed D.A. Carson all the day long. Why? Because while I may like listening to these things, and while these preachers have content out there for us to listen to, they are not going to show us their walk. And if I don't see their walk, then I can't imitate them. But here at church, Aekyong models for me what pastoral ministry looks like in the flesh. My CG members, they model for me what it's like to really wrestle with the realities and competing demands of faith and work and family. My single friends, you remind me of the joy of communion in the body and the satisfaction that we have in Christ. Parents at the back, you remind me of what sacrificial love looks like all the day long and what it looks like to have this sacrificial love and still show up. And the the church aunties and uncles, we love and appreciate you. You show us what it's like to grow well with grace. And Lord willing, you even show us how to die well. The best of your far away Bible scholars and teachers can't do that for you. But friends, God has given us these examples, living, breathing for us in the local church that we might strain forward to what lies ahead together. So Redemption Hill Church, who do you imitate? Beyond person-to-person relationships, for some of us here who might really struggle with that, let let me give you, in, in the meantime, while you figure all of that out, let me give you at least three more ways, at least three more ways that our regular Sunday gathering helps us to shape our walk. Consider pastoral prayer, what Aikyong just explained earlier. I, I, I know it goes on for a little bit longer than, than what some of us might be used to, but have you ever considered what pastoral prayer teaches you about the ways in which you are to think of God, the attributes that are being called mine, the way that we are to care first for well, those in our midst and, and for others and then a watching world? Take these things, bring them home with you. Fathers, mothers, pray such things with your children. Friends, pray such things with one another. Church, pray these things with one another. Consider also our congregational worship. Why don't we fill our stage with amazing electric guitar and drum solos? We have the talent. Um, These things are good and beautiful things in God's good world. Yet, our worship leader, they choose songs and lead songs in a way that help you and me to sing because the Lord knows we don't sing very well on our own and, and, and they, they help us to sing and sing unto one another so that we would take these things and learn consider whatever songs you learn whatever is good bring them home think about these things sing them even if you can with one another and to one another and then consider confession and assurance whether occasionally as you witness a baptismal testimony 
or regularly as we partake in the Lord's Supper, as you prepare your hearts before you come to the Lord's table, or weekly, as Sean will lead us later in our weekly occasions of confession and assurance. Friends, I, I know this, this whole imitation thing might seem like a lot, but I want you to know this crucial aspect. There are few things more precious in the Christian life than for us to learn what it is like to live regular lives of repentance and faith. That's what confession and assurance is meant to teach you. We might not be able to hold many wonderful things of our lives for, for a watching world, but we need this for ourselves and for our world, for them to know what it's like for us to recognize our sin with clarity but hide ourselves in our Savior with, with that full measure of assurance and great confidence. Think about how your regular Sunday gathering shapes your walk together. Hidden in this question of who do you imitate, well, it's also the question if you really follow it through, is your life worthy of imitation? Church, I, I know many of you, I know you are a humble bunch. I, I know many, many of you here won't ever naturally on your own think to yourselves, I need someone to imitate my way of life. Um, maybe some of you here don't even think that you can ever be imitation worthy. But here's the good news for you. The more you imitate godly examples, the more you naturally become imitation worthy. To, to have your own life worthy of imitation is not about wrestling and dazzling and, and cooking up a brand new show. It, it's none of that fanciful thing. But, but it's about following that pattern of life that has been laid out before us from generations past all the way here. The way you pray, the way you sing, the way you read, the way you practice repentance and faith, all of that is there for us. You just need to keep your eyes on those whose walk reminds you that we are not yet home. Those whose lives remind you of heaven's joys. All of this is really important for us. It's crucial that you know this imitation because of what comes next. What comes next raises the stakes. Look with me in the text. I read for us from verse 17 again. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us for many of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Friends, we are social creatures by design and imitators by nature. This is our reality. If you are not imitating those who are straining forward to the upward call of Christ, then you are probably imitating those who are following the call of this passing world. If you are not imitating those who see heaven as their true home, then you are imitating those whom Paul calls enemies of the cross of Christ. Commentators are a little bit split on the precise identity of these enemies. Some think it could be people within the church. Others think it could be opponents outside of the church. I think, yes, <laughs> I think it could Probably we, we both camps, both are very possible. But what I know is clear to us is that these people, when you look at how they are described, they model a pattern of life that is opposite to the message of the cross. You see, a, a message, a key message of the cross of Christ is that God really cares about your destiny. The moments that you and I have here in this life on this earth are just 
a spot in that grand canvas of eternity. And God wants us to be serious about this eternity. So he enters into time and he bears the costly price to redeem us through the cross of Christ so that we would have our eternal destinies secured. Therefore, anything that leads you away from the God who has a forever salvation for us, it stands in opposition to the cross of Christ. It makes little of God's intentions. It makes little of Christ and his sacrifice. And this is what it looks like. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their God is their belly. I assure you it's not a CNY feasting shaming thing. It's not a body shaming thing, but it points to a walk of life where someone is constantly led by their appetites and led by their desires. Their motto of life will probably read, I see, I desire, I take. I see, I desire, I take. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. This tells us that not only has their conscience, what tells them the, about the dividing line between right and wrong, uh, not, not only has their conscience been dulled, but it has probably been perverted. That for which they ought to be ashamed, they are instead prideful, boastful, celebratory. Both of these aspects, the way the sentence is constructed, join together to form this summary pattern of their lives. Their minds are set on earthly things. And this is why they are enemies of the cross of Christ. When you examine what they sacrifice their time, their money, their lives for, when you study how they organize everything that happens, what drives and dictates their Google calendar, when you see how they encounter suffering and adversity, when you think about how they relate to health and wealth, when you trace out all of their underlying motivations and peek into their hearts, when you see what they ultimately encourage people towards, whether implicitly or explicitly, you see minds that are set on earthly things without any bearing whatsoever for the cross of Christ and heaven's glories you see that they effectively proclaim this world right now is what matters most. The true and living God, whoever he is, he has no final bearing for my life or the life to come. And for such people, the end is destruction. Friends, we are to be sober-minded and clear about where our walk is taking us. There are only two walks of life. One strives forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The other, it persists in rebellion towards God and it disregards his patience and kindness. But this life of rebellion will one day come to a final conflict. On that day, there will only be destruction for all who persist in warring against God. So why would you want to entertain the thought of following such a walk? My Christian friends, Christians are to be those who are shaped by the upward call of God in Christ more than we are shaped by any message of modern media, pop culture, 
and even our families of origin. Put simply, Christians are to live on earth as citizens of heaven, as we will soon read about in verse 20. But before we go there, what does this really look like for Christians? We think back. Church history is full of these examples. If you were here with us two weeks ago, uh, Aekyong preached a sermon and he, he actually referenced something that historians have noted about what has been written about the lives of early Christians. And, and I read to us, this was recorded in the, uh, it was a letter to a man called Diognetus. It was written probably around 130 AD. That's about 1,900 years ago. He describes the way Christians are like. He writes, While they live in foreign cities and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and unusual character of their own citizenship. What is it like? They share in everything as citizens of their countries, yet endure everything as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring to kill them. It was the practice back in the day to dispose of any children with defects or infirmities. Back in the days, if you were weak, you died. In many ways, similar to the way certain prenatal abortions happen today. They care for the sick, yet suffer all injury. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. They are generous with their tables, but stingy with their beds, which is another way of saying they share their food and their lives, but not their wives. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. Redemption Hill Church, I pray that you keep your eyes on godly examples, for we are not yet home. I pray that we will be deeply concerned for the things and people of this earth, those whom we love and care for, yet with our minds so clearly set on heaven, engaged and engaging with the culture and needs of the day, yet shaped by the reality of our risen Savior. And friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, uh, I'm not sure how you ended up here on the second day of Chinese New Year with uh, someone, probably a stranger, asking you these things, maybe potentially offensive, but I, I, I'm really glad that you are here. And I want you to hear the message of, of God in His Word with precision. He has set eternity in our hearts that we might seek Him and know Him and find Him. You and I know what this longing for something more feels like. But in our sin, we either distract ourselves or we disillusion ourselves from the reality of God. Still, He has made it possible for us to seek Him and know Him through the cross of Christ, that we who are enemies of God in our sin might be reconciled to Him by His grace. If there's any one thing, you here, if you're not a Christian, if there's any one thing you have to remember, then remember the cross of Christ. You see, the cross of Christ shows us exactly how God wants us to know Him. The fact that God has given His Word, acted throughout history in various ways, the fact that Jesus takes on flesh, is born a human baby, walks this earth, performs the miracles that He did, all of that is proof enough that God is real. But how does He want us to know Him? How, how does this God want you to know the beating heart of his message to a world in rebellion, look to the cross. 
There, Jesus hung and died in the place of sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that you and I would know just how seriously the holy God of justice takes our sin. But most importantly, the cross of Christ tells us that the holy God of justice is also the holy God of love. And this love extends even to his enemies. That's why Paul writes elsewhere, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. It is this same love that calls sinners into an eternity with Him. The Jesus who died in the place of sinners is also the Jesus who was raised to life so that you and I who trust in Him can know today that we will be raised to be with Him. If you have questions about this, I would really love to chat with you. I would love to think about these things with you. Uh, whether it's about the reality of Jesus, whether it's about the gospel of Christ, whether it's about his resurrection, come, let us converse, let us chat. I would love to listen. Now with that said, we press on in our text. While we've been going on for a while, um, Paul's argument is really, it can be summarized into two simple moves. We've been looking at the first one. Christ has made you his own, so press on because you are not yet home. That's chapter 3, verses 12 to 19. The second part says, you are citizens of heaven, beginning in verse 20. So stand firm, for friends, we are almost home. If heaven is our forever home, it's worth asking, what exactly are the defining traits of this citizenship? What are the sights and the smells of this heavenly home? One sure thing that pops out as you, uh, if you look with me to the next slide, uh, these verses, uh, and then again, one sure thing that pops out is love. Uh, I know it can sound cliche. Uh, you might think it a little bit sappy, but, but you really can't understate it. Heaven is a place of love. Did you see the language that envelops Paul's exhortation to stand firm? My brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. And as though that were not enough, he throws in a, my beloved. Paul gushes with love for the Philippian church. Who, who, who talks like this? You might think this a little bit too sappy, but when you contextualize this in relation to the cross of Christ where God displays his love for us, then you see and you know that Paul's gushing love is really just a drop in the ocean of the infinite, unceasing love that Christ has. Paul speaks with such love because God has an abundance of love for us. Paul models such love for this love will never pass away and he wants our hearts to be well warmed up for that coming day and reality. Friends, this love is centered on a person. It's a personal love. We don't just await an experience, a change in circumstances or environments or just a thing, but we await a person. We await, as Paul says, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You and I know what it's like to wait and love things, experiences, 
Especially if you're Singaporean, you, you know very well what it's like to love and wait for your favorite hawker store, gadget release, job opportunity, travel experience. If you can name it, Singaporeans have probably loved and waited for it. Yet all of us here also know that it's really only worth it to wait for a person. Wait for a thing. You gain it, but its earthly joy will soon fade away. You may enjoy it for an hour, a day, a month, years, but sooner or later it will fade away. However, if you have had the unique privilege of waiting to know a person, a person truly worth it, a friend, a family member, a loved one, a spouse, um, not toxic relationships, okay? I mean like someone who is actually truly worth it. If you've, had, have did, if you've had this experience with someone whom you can truly love and who loves you back, you know that your joy only grows upon gaining that person. You get to know that person and then again and again, you get to be known. You get to delight in life together. And this sort of delight only grows with the best of persons. If we have known this in the best of our human relationships, how much more so will it be with Christ, who is himself love? What a joy it is to know that our heavenly home is really not just a change in scenery or circumstances or a desirable thing, but our Jesus Christ himself. Friends, I'm camping on personal love because it is exactly what all of us yearn for. If you've ever been near to someone on their deathbed, you know that these fleeting moments reveal what is most precious to the human heart. This applies to all of us, Christians or non-Christians, religious or otherwise. Remember my mention um, in, in our introduction about the atheist prison chaplain? Have you ever wondered what atheists who don't believe in any sense of the afterlife, they just believe in a forever nothingness. Uh, do you, have you ever wondered what they say to each other at the deathbed? Well, here's what the New York Times recorded for us. Devin, the chaplain, rested a hand on Philip, the murderer who was going to die, rested a hand on Philip's knee and recited the words that he had written in his notebook. We call the spirit of humanity into this space. Let love fill our hearts. We ask that this transition into peaceful oblivion that, Phil, that Philip feels, that love, and although this is his journey, that he is not alone. I just want us to pause and take in, this is such a tender, tender thought. That there is a threefold common thread that is woven through every human heart. First, we long for love. Second, we long for companionship, to not be alone. And third, third, we long for it to last. While Philip's atheism meant that none of these things last in his view, the reality of our citizenship in heaven means that we will know love. We will not be alone, but in the companionship of Jesus and his church, and it will last. It will stand the test of time, for Christ has conquered the grave. So stand firm, beloved of the Lord. Our home is a person of love, 
if you are here and you realize that you actually don't really know much of this person, Jesus Christ, or that your love has grown a little cold, then press on to make it your own because Christ has made all who will trust in him his own. It gets better. Love with Jesus isn't just sentimental. It's not just a nice feeling, but it transforms. Our final verse reads, We await the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And here's what it means. As surely as Jesus is raised from the dead in victory, as surely as he is alive and risen today, so surely will we one day be like him. Not just be with him, but be like him. But what is a glorious body, you ask? Levitation? Teleportation? Even better, no more pimples? I used to think quite hard about this as, as a younger person growing up, but, but as, the more I read this text, and the more I read surrounding texts where Paul talks about our glorious resurrected body, the more I'm convinced that the glory Paul has in mind here, it is much greater than just the functions and mechanics of a resurrected body. When Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, here's how he describes it. Look with me to the screen. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when Paul speaks of this glorious, imperishable body, he wants us to think of nothing less than the death of death and the final shattering of sin. We sometimes have too small a view of glory, but Paul wants us to know that glory looks like death finally defeated. Have you longed for such a day? No more coffins? No more tiny coffins. Paul wants us to know that glory also looks like sin shattered. Have you longed for such a day? No more hardness of heart that harms those around us. No more rebellion that rages against our good God. True joy and fellowship with those around us and the world that we live in. An undefiled sense of knowing God the God who loved us and made himself for us. Redemption Hill Church, as citizens of heaven, this belongs to us as our right. It will be ours to enjoy, shoulder to shoulder. We are not yet who we want to be. We are not yet who we should be. But there is coming a day when we will be exactly and everything who everything we were meant to be when he appears we shall be everything we were meant to be for we shall see him as he is and he will bring us home so stand firm and press on thus in the lord my beloved
Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we ask that in this time and in this place, you would continue to do great and wondrous things. Do not let us be content with earth's fleeting joys. You have been deceived by them far too many a time. Let us only be content by the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And for all of us here with troubled hearts, by the power of your Spirit, send your light and your truth. Help us to see you rightly. Help us to see our Saviour rightly, that we will trust Him in all the more. We pray these things in His name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.